Hello, mythologists, fabulists, and folklorists. I'm Grant Faulkner, currently happy writer and executive director of NaNoWriMo. And I'm with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who, as a book coach, editor, and publisher of She Writes Press, uh, has essentially channeled many stories over the years. And I mentioned channeling stories because our guest today, Kwame Mbalia, based his young adult series, Tristan Strong, on folklore, myth, and history. And I actually think we, we channel all of our stories, whether we're conscious of that or not. It's like we're in a giant jazz band and we're picking up melodies and riffing on them, making them our own, but we're always grounded in the stories that have created us. That said, sometimes we are very intentional and specific about the stories we build our stories with, and that's the case with Kwame. There is a long history of retelling in literature, whether it's William Shakespeare drawing on histories to write many of his plays, or retellings like NaNoWriMo writer Marissa Meyer's Cinder, a retelling of Cinderella, or Daniel Page's Dorothy Must, a retelling of Dorothy's story from The Wizard of Oz. So I'm curious, Brooke, do you have any favorite retellings, uh, especially those stories based on mythology? You know, since uh, today's guest, Kwame, is actually published by Rick Riordan Presents, which is uh, Rick Riordan's publishing company, I have to say Percy Jackson is the one that I'm definitely the most into because it's been about three years running that this series has captured James's attention. It is astounding to me. He listens to the books and then he also reads the books while listening to the audiobooks to the point that he really knows a lot of these stories by heart. Um, but I'm happy with that because I like these books a lot. I think they're fun and action-packed. And I also know that kids love repetition because it's both familiar and comforting. Uh, so when I think about it, like at his age, I was watching a lot of movies back to back to back, like Back to the Future once a month for probably three years running. Uh, and, you know, those are good memories for me. And so for the time being, we're fully immersed in Percy Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I love that era when my kids were obsessed with Percy Jackson, which which they're, they're books that, that draw heavily on Greek mythology in case our listeners aren't familiar with them. And I miss that era. Um, my kids also introduced me to Circe by Madeline Miller, which was spawned by Greek mythology. And since I mentioned Marissa Meyer's Cinder, which is a futuristic cyborg retelling of Cinderella, I wanted to also mention Helen Oyemi's Boy Snow Bird, which also uses the story of Cinderella, but in a contemporary realistic setting. Oyemi uses the fairy tale to explore the alchemy of racism and cultural ideas about beauty in really compelling ways. And, you know, the mirror, uh, metaphorically and literally, holds a tyranny because of the power we give to surfaces and the way those surfaces create a hierarchy and biases. And she explores that in her novel. And, you know, when I think about it, you might say that we're living in the age of retellings or adaptations, you know, starting with the popularity of fan fiction. And I think of recent novels like Neil Gaiman's American Gods, Victor Laval's The Changeling, you know, novels like Bridget Jones' Diary, Marlon James's Dark Star Trilogy, and even Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You know, they're all retellings, you know, and I think we, we were, yeah, we're in an age where we're finding meaning and recasting our favorite stories. But this also brings up the topic of originality, which I'm often asked about. You know, authors worry about others stealing their stories, but I always say that's impossible. Even if they take your premise or idea, they'll tell an entirely different story than you do. And I think these retellings operate the same way. Uh, writers might use a tale like Cinderella to frame or inform their stories, but as readers, it had better not be just Cinderella. You know, it needs to be something much more. So I'm curious, what's your take, Brooke? Are, are the authors we mentioned stealing stories? Um, are they trespassing on fictional lands they shouldn't? Um, you know, or, or are there any ethics they need to think about? 
I mean, in my opinion, I think that this is pretty widely accepted, you know, especially when it comes to these classic stories and to mythology, it's just been done so often. And I think there's even more creativity and going back to this idea of James loving the repetition. I think the reason we love the retelling of these stories is actually because they're familiar. And then you see these storylines come out and you're like, wait a second, am I watching a Cinderella story? <laughs> you know, because I was thinking about this as you're talking about Cinderella and all all the ways in which Cinderella stories show up in the movies, you know, Cinderella inspired Pretty Woman, uh, The Princess Diaries, The Wedding Planner, just to name, a, you know, one or two or three of the hundred plus films. Uh, but when I went online last night, actually, to look at Pretty Woman, which is totally a Cinderella story, complete with Richard Gere, you know, coming in the limo as her Prince Charming, it's not easy to find that called a Cinderella story. And I just think, you know, if you consider the vast differences between all of these different kinds of stories and like the cyborg Cinderella, there's just a lot of room to play. And I, I encourage it. I actually love what's happening right now in YA and genre fiction in general, um, you know, where they're turning these stories upside down, like the idea of the cyborg. It's kind of subversive and creating new plots. We're seeing lots and lots of YA that is centering people of color in new ways and claiming a different narrative. And I think that's super important. Uh, so there's just a lot here fodder for creation. And I don't see that these reimaginings are any less creative than inventing something totally new. Personally, um, I think that having a framework allows for a certain level, uh, like a different kind of creativity and imaginations to spring forth. Um, and honestly, like to me, if you're writing a book, you're deeply immersed in a creative process, no matter what. And the only exception to that, of course, would be plagiarizing, <laughs> which yeah. I, I have to mention because unfortunately it happens. It's interesting territory. I haven't written retellings based on mythology, but I have written a novel directly inspired by a favorite novel of mine. And in, in some ways, I think having a story to guide you does make it easier. You have a, a roadmap or a direction, but but that also makes it more challenging. I was certainly very challenged to reinterpret the story and to make it my own and to write a novel as if it didn't have that precedent so that I wasn't merely imitating, but using the story as a, as a source of creation. And I think that's where the question of originality lies. Are you taking an existing story and furthering it or subverting it, as you mentioned? Are you essentially bringing that original story's brothers and sisters into the world to take on different forms and different lives? Uh, I really liked Kwame's metaphor when we talked to him earlier today about the accordion. He was he viewed the mythology that he was drawing from as an accordion that he could expand. So I love that thought. The challenge is to take the story to a new land. Totally. And I, I think that actually is a great metaphor for almost any kind of storytelling, you know, that you have a lot of room to play, you know, you can open it, you can expand it, you can take it where you want to go. And honestly, like so much of this is about permission giving. And it's really important as storytellers, as writers to give yourself permission, no matter what kind of writing you're doing, retelling or otherwise. And Kwame was a fun interview. So um, we'll be right back with him after this short break. So, Brooke, I'm so glad that Wondrium is back in my life. I've taken a little break there, but Buster and I, uh, Buster's my dependable dog. If listeners don't know, we're back in a groove where I'm walking and I'm quasi-watching episodes on our morning walks to edify myself and learn more. And the best thing about it is that if you've ever wondered about pretty much anything, there's a program <laughs> or an episode for that on Wondrium. 
Yes, there is. It's fascinating. Wendrium's relaunch and rebrand is also just easier. I'm loving it. They have incredible content with answers to millions of the whys, hows, wheres, whats, whos, and whens you've ever had. So one of the things that I've been dipping into is the food and drink ones. Uh, I feel like I've been in a real rut around food and cooking. I'm not sure why, because so many people during the pandemic have really loved it. And for me, it's been hard. But I had some friends over recently and I made mushroom risotto and it was awesome. And then I remembered how after I got home from living abroad in Spain, I used to make paella kind of often. So I watched Delicious Dishes, Paella Valenciana this week. And now the next dinner party I have, I'm definitely going to make it. And it also uh, restoked my confidence a bit watching the episode because it's been a while and it's a complicated dish. And so I'm feeling ready, feeling armed. Grant, I'm wondering if you've been able to push past the guitar class yet or if that's forever. And, you know, after all, we did extol the benefits of repetition on today's show. I've, in fact, mastered the guitar, <laughs> and I'm now recording an album. How's that for an endorsement Woo-hoo! of one dream? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I'm still doing the lessons, which is one nice thing about one dream. You know, the program is always there for me. But as I mentioned on my dog walks, I'm expanding my learning. I'm planning to write more personal essays this year. So I'm currently exploring the appropriately titled Writing Great Essays episode. And one of the small gratitudes for me when we do these ads is our special URL to get our listeners started with a free trial of unlimited access. So, Brooke, do you want to deliver that URL? I do, Grant. Thank you for giving that to me. Uh, I know it's giving it up in a lot of ways, and I appreciate it. (laughs) So, listeners, to get this offer, sign up now through our special URL, wondrium.com forward slash right-minded. So that is wondrium. W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash right-minded. Grant? Wondrium is hands down my favorite streaming service. Get out there and learn about whatever you want, whenever you want. And I have to say this URL. (laughs) Go to wondrium.com forward slash right-minded and learn. Welcome back, everyone. I'm thrilled to introduce Kwame Mbalia, our guest today. Kwame is a husband, father, New York Times bestselling author, and former pharmaceutical metrologist in that order. He has written the Tristan Strong trilogy, Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, Tristan Strong Destroys the World, and he just published Tristan Strong Keeps Punching. All three books are about African-American folktales. Kwame is a Howard University graduate and a Midwesterner now in North Carolina, and he survives on dad jokes and Cheez-Its, as do I. Welcome, Kwame. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. It's a treat. And I'm curious about basing a book on folk tales. I've, I've, I've actually never done this, so I'm just going to imagine that it's almost like writing historical fiction in the sense that you're interpreting and reimagining a story in essence. So I was wondering if, if that's the case, um, or how did you approach using folktales as the springboard for your series? I like to think of it more along the lines of like a retelling or even uh, an expansion of a story. I don't, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I don't know if I made up this analogy or if I heard it somewhere. So I'm going to preemptively give some anonymous person credit for this (laughs) analogy. But I like to think of it as an accordion 
in that, you know, when it's all smushed together, you have this story here. And what I like to do is I like to expand it to give space in between so that I can let some of the personality or uh, some of the characters that maybe only had one or two speaking lines or possibly uh, in the case of a fan favorite gum baby didn't speak at all. Um, I like to expand it and find room where I can really add my own, you know, flavor and, or maybe tell parts of the story that uh, some of us might breeze over. That's interesting. Uh, I love it. I think you should claim it if you, until someone tells you <laughs> otherwise. I read an interview you did with Rick Reardon Presents, and that's your publisher, that your parents used to tell you these types of stories all the time. So could you tell us more uh, about the African folklore that you grew up with? Sure. You know, full credit to my parents. They did a fantastic job, really, scouring, you know, not just the country, but the planet, because they frequently traveled to different parts of Africa for their for their job. And they would bring home books and stories. And they wanted to build a library in our house that reflected the characters that looked like me uh, by authors that looked like me. And so I was fortunate enough to read and listen to a bunch of stories. And most a lot of them were folktales, specifically as a uh, one of four siblings in a household and we used to share a room, you know, it could be kind of tough going to sleep at night uh, or getting us to go to sleep at night peacefully, you know, without fighting. <laughs> and so they would put on cassette tapes of uh, Anansi tales and John Henry uh, folk tales. And so I would listen to them, you know, falling asleep and dreaming about them. And so it's kind of been um, almost like a lifelong dream to actually write stories that I remember hearing so that I could bring them forward, you know, for my own kids uh, so that they could read them or listen to the audiobooks and dream their own stories about them. So it was like an obligation that my parents kind of passed on to me. And that's that's really why I love telling these stories now. That's a great story, Kwame. And I'm very interested in this, you know, dreaming about these characters and and then uh, also going back to your accordion analogy of expanding them. And so I'm curious when you're writing a story or a series of stories with mythological characters like that, you must grow. Some must become your friends more than others, put it that way. And so, so I'm curious which of the characters you may be related to the most and why. Um, that's a very, very, very hard question because if you've read Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky, for example, it's a hefty book. It's, you know, almost 500 pages. And I really tried to stuff so many different characters in there. And when you do that, especially when you have a large cast, you try and, you know, make them distinct, make them interesting, make them stand out a bit, right? Um, and it is that distinctiveness, that personality that really makes you fall in love with the character. Um, their quirks. Uh, you know, Anansi is always after Tristan for his grandmother's uh, plantain recipe or, you know, John Henry in the most recent Tristan Strong Keeps Punching is really fascinated with the idea of blogging. Just these these little quirks are really what endear characters to readers. And I consider myself a reader first and a writer second. But if, you know, I had to choose, you know, um, I would probably... Hmm, I would probably have to say Hi John the Conqueror just because I love characters that 
maybe you can, uh, I guess the term is maybe anti-heroes, right? Or great, morally uh-huh. gray characters, characters that do the right thing for the wrong reason. Um, and when we first meet Hi John in book one, he's doing that. And he grows uh, in, in through book three, you know, not to provide any spoilers. He really grows on me as someone who truly believes that they're right with their moral compass, even if you disagree, like given, you know, if, if on a, on a good day over coffee, he might convince you, you know, of, of his way of thinking because he's doing the right thing. You just, you know, his, his motivations are a teensy bit, you know, not in line with yours. (laughs) That's a great answer. Um, So Tristan strong keeps punching just came out. This is a trilogy, right? Is that, is that the end of the series? (sighs) <sighs> yes i call it i don't know i don't know what you call i don't i don't know what you call like a three and a half book series because there is a um there is a gum baby short story in the rick riordan presents anthology uh the cursed carnival um that kind of falls in between book two and book three i love that so it's a trilla half a g trilla half a g <laughs> Trilla half a G is perfect. Uh, newly coined. Uh, well, and just given that sigh, it sounds like it must be hard for it to come to an end. And I just wanted to ask you about that, you know, bringing a series to an end, the ways in which Tristan's story might show up beyond the last word in this latest book. It is, you know, I don't know if I've truly processed it because the way the writing cycle for me has always worked with the Tristan Strong series, which is my first series, so it's really the formative way of of how I've been writing these books, is, you know, the book comes out, you know, I go on tour or I do a bunch of school visits, which, you know, I'm kind of doing now virtually, and then I don't, I wouldn't start writing the next book until January of the next year, just to kind of give yourself that rest and space to recover and breathe. And so I don't know if it's really hit me. I think January is going to come around. I'm going to be like, I don't have a new Tristan book to write. But with with that being said, I, I'm being slowly weaned off of the idea of, of you know, uh, this series being done because there is a, a Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky graphic novel that comes out next August. So it's almost like a full circle return to the beginning in a new format, a new way to experience the story. And so it's like, I'm just barely clinging on to this trilogy. I'm like, not fully letting go just yet. There's still a a new way to experience the story. So it's like, I've not, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, listen, they'll, they'll, they'll have to give me another book to do after this one because, (laughs) uh, they're still, you know, they're still putting out properties in the, in the, in the universe. So you, you never say never. You just hold on to hope. Well, Kwame, I wanted to talk a little bit about creative process uh, because I know you've hosted writing sprints on Twitter during NaNoWriMo in the past. And I see this year you posted what to me was, I guess, a funny pic of a um, picture of Packers quarterback uh, Aaron Rodgers lying on the ground with a with a startled uh, look on his face after getting sacked, I think, perhaps to describe your feelings on day one of NaNoWriMo this year. So I was wondering if you could tell us, one, have you written a novel during NaNoWriMo? And if you have... What was your experience like? And I hope it wasn't being sacked like Aaron Rodgers. That's 
probably writing in general for me is that <laughs> they startled expression of, uh, you know, one day you've written these words and you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, wait, I have to do it again and again and again. Um, for me, I've written um, in NaNoWriMo at least uh, four years in a row, oh. I want to say. And technically, I've never completed it just because I always forget to like log my words because I'm super <laughs> like my brain is 20 goldfish um, swimming in a circle um, and it latches on to whatever new shiny thing it sees. So I'm always forgetting like to update. Uh, this year, I'm actually running a Slack group where uh, it started before NaNoWriMo, but it was more like, you know, that two week prep lead time getting in the habit of writing daily and now that NaNoWriMo has started we've been updating each other encouraging each other um, doing sprints but for me my process it is leashed chaos simply because I have children and children apparently demand attention uh, in meals frequently throughout the day (laughs) and so I write when I can um, which is why if you follow me on Twitter I haven't done it as much recently because I've been too busy posting threatening Muppet pictures, asking people if they've written that day. (laughs) Um, But I used to do the um, stop and give me 50, you know, so stop whatever you're doing and write 50 words. And, you know, if you stop at 50, that's great. But if you keep going, that's even better. That's my process is I try and get 50 to 200 words, you know, at some point when I can throughout the day. Um, starting in the morning, you know, before lunch, after lunch, in the afternoon, in the evening. And then when the kids are finally in bed at 8.30, I, you know, sit and look at what I've done. And I've have, even, you know, anywhere between 700 and 1,000 words. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've written that much throughout the day just by doing it in little spurts here and there, not totally stressing myself out. Just get what you can when you can. And don't stress about when you have to stop. Obviously, that's not something, I don't know if that's something I could do when I was on deadline. But now that I'm not on deadline and I'm just writing with friends, doing that, that has saved me so much like mental stress, knowing that if I can just do a little bit throughout the day, when I finally have an hour or two to carve out for myself to really sit down and write, I've already got a head start. And the end is that just, you know, that much closer. Yeah, Kwame, I'm so glad you mentioned that because stop and give me 50. That's brilliant. I want to, can we use that at NaNoWriMo, by the way? And the accordion. Absolutely. <laughs> this is, this is. Can we steal um, everything? Thanks. My permission to go forth. There are way too many writers out there, brilliant writers, who are paralyzed in front of the keyboard um, by the blank page because the daunting task of doing however much typing, writing, whatever their word count goal is for the day, it's, you know, nearly insurmountable to them to face that task. But 50 words, that's, that's two to three sentences. That's a couple lines of dialogue. That's a description of a, of a foggy day. You can do that. So I do want to loop back to your bio real quick, just about the pharmaceutical metrologist, because I think people are just going to be so curious about what that is and whether you're ever going to weave a pharmaceutical metrologist into your fiction? That, you know, the second part is a great question. But so a pharmaceutical metrologist, a metrologist is someone who um, works on instrumentation, instruments, um, not the musical kind, but like, 
you know, radar, sonar, you know, different pieces of equipment that need to be maintained to make sure they're working appropriately, right? If you're in a submarine and your radar or your sonar isn't working, you could be, you know, uh, miles off course. In the pharmaceutical industry, you think of all the different types of medicine you or someone else might be taking. Yeah, I just I just took uh, a couple of ibuprofen for a headache, and I, I want to say it's like 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. Uh, how do we know it's 200 milligrams? Well, because that's you know the amount the manufacturer says they put in it. Well, how do they know? Well, because they had to weigh it out. Well, how do they know that the scale that they weighed it on is accurate? Well, because a pharmaceutical metrologist came in there, calibrated it with his equipment, traceable certificates to where they were manufactured, and gave you a declarative statement that, all right, this is putting out, this is accurate to this degree. And that's really how I like to explain it. I and my daughter, well, I used to, my daughter now has an asthma inhaler, a meter dose inhaler is what they call it. And how do you know you're getting the correct dose? Well, because the manufacturer said it because they used calibrated equipment that a pharmaceutical metrologist went in there and worked on to make sure that it was accurate. It's a job I didn't know existed <laughs> until I was out of college. Yeah, it, it falls into the um, more broadly a service technician, someone who travels around to work on, you know, particular group. Um, of instrumentation, I didn't know it existed. And I love telling students about it because they give you a car, they give you a gas card, they pay for all of that. They give you a phone, a laptop, they give you all of this. You have a territory, you get to drive around, you meet new people. If you're the type of wanderer like I am, and you like seeing new things and and learning new things, um, I've went in uh, soda bottling plants. And as someone who lives and dies by carbonated beverages. It was absolutely revelatory. It was like entering a chapel for me. And, you know, I've been in places that, you know, make some of the harshest chemicals uh, where you have to go inside in two full body suits just to even, you know, step in the instrument's proximity. It's a fascinating job. Would I ever put a service tech in one of my stories? Um, yes, but of course, knowing me, it would have to be, some sort of fantasy or sci-fi service tech, like someone who's got a, a calibrate a dragon harness or, or something like that, working on the warp drive of a spaceship. Because I'm fascinated, I don't want to call it mundane, but I want I am fascinated by the hidden jobs in worlds. And I think there are so many stories, you know, uh, yes, I love stories about superheroes, but I want more stories about the people who clean up after a superhero battle. I want I want to hear their stories because those to me are absolutely fascinating. I love that. We never think about who cleans up after those battles. Never. And as a as a parent, it frustrates me because it's basically giant toddlers wrestling in downtown Metropolis and then we have to come and clean up after it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, in closing, Kwame, I read that the novel you're the biggest evangelist for is Legend Born by Tracy Dion. And since Tracy wrote a NaNoWriMo pep talk for us this year, I'd love to know why you think everyone should read Legend Born and if or how it's influenced your writing. Um, Legend Born is a brilliant book. Let me put that out there. Contemporary fantasy, interweaving, um, Arthurian legend uh, with, you know, uh, contemporary Chapel Hill life, uh, just absolutely brilliant. And as a North Carolinian, you know, I'm that much more, you know, um, fascinated with it because of how um, Tracy weaves our, you know, neighborhoods into 
uh, her story. So the book is brilliant, but but the book doesn't inspire me. Tracy inspires me because uh, not a lot of people know, but you know, Tracy and I would um, meet at Starbucks, and I would work on Tristan, and she would work on Legendborn, uh, and we would talk about what we were frustrated with or what we were trying to do. Um, and seeing how I got to read some of the early drafts, you know, and so seeing how Tracy worked and worked and revised and transformed what was already a great book into something, a brilliant piece of literature, um, that is really the inspiring part for me. And that's what I think about whenever I sit down and I'm like, oh, this draft is garbage. And then I'm like, you know what? That's fine. That's fine because we can revise, we can work on it, we can edit it, we can shape it into the vision that we originally imagined, even if right now it's just a lump of ugly clay. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Kwame, and happy NaNoWriMo. I hope you uh, stop and write 50 words many times this month. Uh, I'm going to have to do something today. I have not started (laughs) writing yet, and the Slack group is going to get on me. So thank you for having me. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. One of the hardest things about getting published these days, especially if you write nonfiction book, has to do with author platform and that a nonfiction book deal is tied to what that platform is. You know, you're following what you're doing online, speaking, teaching, social media. But so many would-be authors don't have a platform or they're trying to grow one and feeling frustrated that they're starting so far behind. Yeah, that is so true, Grant. And that is why we want to tell listeners about our friend and author, former podcast guest, Courtney Mom's new book proposal masterclass. And I work with a lot of authors on their book proposals. And what I know to be true is that there's a real art to it. And it's not something that you dash off in a weekend. It's really as important as a portfolio if you were an artist who wanted to go in and show your work at a gallery. And there are a lot of things about it that are pretty insidery. And so understanding what those things are, uh, what an agent or editor needs and wants when they're reading your proposal is very important. Uh, And so Courtney is offering this masterclass as a way to position your project the right way and also maximize your chances of getting a deal. One thing I love about Courtney is that she's always very funny and welcoming and optimistic. Whether you've never written a proposal or you're getting lost inside your concept, this upbeat two-hour class will empower you. She tackles the issue of what people who don't like social media can do, and an enrollment includes access to a private forum where Courtney will weigh in on your project, which is really valuable. Uh, plus, Courtney's got a special discount for right-minded listeners. Yes, and we love that. So go check that out. Uh, Courtney Mom, Courtney C. O-U-R-T-N-E-Y, and the last name is Mom, M-A-U-M, so CourtneyMom.com, rhymes, <laughs> to go find her class, and you'll see it right there on the homepage, and then just do yourself a favor and watch her trailer video. It is delightful, and it will give you a flavor of her personality, and you can use our discount code, which is CMOM dash writers. We will put that in the show notes. So C-M-A-U-M dash writers at checkout for the discount. Yeah. And I love repeating URLs online, especially (laughs) after Brooke does such a good job. And that URL again is CourtneyMom.com and use C-Mom dash writers at checkout. This 
this week's book trend is about paper, which we tend to take for granted, but paper costs are going up, perhaps along with the costs of everything these days as, as inflation is on the tip of everyone's tongue. So, Brooke, I know you work directly with printers and you see the rising costs in a firsthand way each day. So what's happening out there with the printers you work with and how is it impacting your decisions about printing and pricing? Yeah, it is a good question because the rising cost of paper is nearly unnoticeable until all of a sudden it's not, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we're calculating unit costs and then all of a sudden I'm like, geez, how much has paper gone up in the past year or two years? Um, and, and it's it's significant. We print our ARCs, which is the advanced reader copies with Ingram. And so we've been seeing paper prices there increasing a lot incrementally over time. You know, they'll send you little notices, but it's usually cents, you know, but those cents, of course, they accumulate and they turn into lots of cents and then it's a per unit cost. Um, our offset printers are wonderful, but of course the prices are going up there as well. And then there's been a big push this fall in particular to get all of your print run orders in early so that you're not missing important dates, everything is taking longer and everything is more expensive. Um, and so it's honestly a pretty stressful time to be a publisher. I bet it is. And, you know, uh, I guess the big question is, are books going to become more expensive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess yes. I, I yeah, think I that is... That I figured. Yeah, that's that's the trend, um, and that is inevitable. And for instance, we're going to be raising our base retail price starting in the fall of 2022, and it's kind of a no-brainer because you have to deduct those printing costs from whatever your gross profits are. And so we're clearly keeping an eye on that given how big the industry discounts are. So I'm going to do a little math. I think some people are going to be into this and other people are going to be like, what? So bear with me for a second economics lesson. Amazon and other retailers take 50 to 55% of the list price right out the gate, right? So for our books, which currently are priced at $16.95, that means that we're selling books to retailers for $8.50. Uh, then the distributor takes whatever their cut is, and then we have a royalty split with the author. So you start to realize how very little money any one of these entities is making. And the printing costs, of course, have to be deducted from the profits of whoever is covering the cost of the printing. So it just starts to make sense why the publishing business is such a crazy business model, but it also makes sense why we have to rely on economies of scale. That's a long answer to say we're going to be raising our price $1 um, to $17.95 starting next year. Uh, well, that really puts things in perspective. And I think it's, it's uh, speaking of perspective, uh, you know, books cost about as much as a movie, you know, less than a movie and popcorn, you know, and a book gives us at least more long lasting pleasure than a movie. So I think uh, I'm willing to pay that extra dollar. And I, uh, I remember reading in your book, Right on Sisters, that the price of books has actually remained static for a really long time, which seems right to me. Yeah, it's true. And, um, you know, you have to get consumers to be on board to value the content more, you know, to want to pay more. And so like everything will incrementally raise the prices and it will be interesting to see if that becomes a more across the board trend that we see in publishing. I mean, I think, like I said, it's inevitable, but it's also publisher to publisher. You know, each of us makes our own decisions and it's something to keep an eye on. And, you know, of course, everybody will keep buying books, but you're going to you're going to be feeling that price increase probably pretty soon yeah well the price might be going up but but right-minded is is staying the same we're going to be free we're going to be here every week 
You can download us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, thank you for tuning in. We love having you as listeners. So thank you, and we'll see you next week.